California moving to phase out gasoline cars and pushing the transition toward electric ones. We look at how the shift is helping China. We now have all committed to green lithium ion, uh, all these batteries that require uh, China's participation in their manufacturing. Is the global supply chain at stake again? A number of Chinese cities now under lockdown, impacting millions and shutting down the world's factory. Washington boosting its partnership in the South China Sea. That's through a joint drill with the Philippines. And the International Tennis Federation says famed Chinese athlete Peng Shuai is safe. But is she? Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. We've heard about California's push for more electric vehicles throughout the state. But more electric vehicles means more EV batteries and a boost in production volume. That's where America's reliance on China kicks in. Let's take a closer look. As California takes another leap towards banning sales of new gas-fueled vehicles by 2035, electric or hydrogen cars may soon be the only option for drivers looking to buy a new vehicle. The push for all electric cars means many more lithium-ion batteries needed for powering these machines. Two automotive industry experts weighed in on one of the most notorious environmental challenges of EV manufacturing, recycling lithium-ion batteries. It turns out that lithium-ion batteries are about 98% recyclable even today. And of course, technology will improve that as we move forward. Uh, it's certainly true to say that the actual industry is in its infancy, and we do not as yet have the recycling uh, infrastructure in place uh, to, to do that. But we will. Again, it's another supply and demand thing. Wheatley, CEO of an off-grid EV charging infrastructure solutions company, says if the demand for EVs increases, so will the demand and need for improved recycling processes. Right now there is no true process to take any of these large EV batteries, disassemble them, recycle them, and use that material for something else. There is nothing in place. There's people that have tried. There's a couple companies that are working on it, but they still have not come up with a solution that works. Fix, an automotive analyst, says current disposal processes are not environmentally friendly. According to Tesla, none of its, quote, scrapped lithium-ion batteries go to landfills. The company added that 100% of the batteries are recycled and reused. But Tesla's report does not reveal where those scrapped parts that go to third-party recyclers eventually end up. If the demand for EVs increases, manufacturers will need lithium-ion battery production volume to match, a process that requires rare earth metals. We don't mine cobalt, cadmium, nickel, mercury, neodymium, and there's seven rare earth minerals because of the damage to the environment. So we are reliant on China. Despite the cars being clean, battery production isn't necessarily. Mineral mining might not impact U.S. soil, but according to an article by Yale University's School of the Environment, China has poisoned part of its land with chemicals from rare earth mining. On top of that, U.S. lawmakers have accused the Chinese Communist Party of using forced labor in its mining processes. But the Biden administration has made a push for more, quote, made in America EVs as part of his recently signed Inflation Reduction Act. For now, California's ban on sales of gas-fueled cars still awaits final federal approval. If finalized, drivers can still buy and sell old or used gas-powered cars even after 2035. California's push for replacing gas-fueled vehicles with electric ones by 2035 may come with a catch.
we now have all committed to green lithium ion, uh, all these batteries that require uh, China's participation in their manufacturing. Anne Bridges is the author of Groundbreaking, America's New Quest for Mineral Independence. Most electric cars use lithium-ion batteries, and right now, China dominates that market as much as 80 percent. Six out of the 10 biggest EV battery makers are based in China, and one particular producer called CATL wields immense influence in the industry. It makes three out of every 10 EV batteries. Even though you may never have heard of it, CATL supplies to some of the industry's biggest names, Tesla, BMW, and Kia. And now, that reliance on China for EV batteries is raising concerns. The whole world is now reliant on single source, certainly single locale um, regions in the world to supply certain things. And even today, I don't know if you saw this, uh, the lithium uh, plants in China have been closed down for a period of time because of the extreme drought. There's no more hydropower or not enough to run these factories. So uh, it's it's something outside of all of our control to uh, to be able to really manage. So if we don't have multiple sources of energy, if we don't have multiple sources of manufacturing, then we are beholden to whatever the vagaries of fate are, whether it's war or famine or drought or whatever. The U.S. is trying to catch up. President Biden plans to invest in domestic lithium mining, a key material used in EV batteries. But ramping up mining is just the beginning. Lithium processing is a complicated and capital-intensive process. Research estimates it could take the U.S. years and an over $170 billion investment to catch up. Zooming out, China controls over two-thirds of the global lithium processing. If the U.S. can't catch up on lithium processing, it might still need to ship the material to Asia to refine it before using it to produce EV batteries. Are global supply chains primed to take another hit? Maybe. And China's strict COVID-19 controls may be to blame. On Monday, seven Chinese major cities entered lockdown or semi-lockdown. Each of them has a population over 10 million. One of them is southern China's tech hub Shenzhen. The global electronics sourcing center has been dubbed the world's factory. One of the manufacturing plants there is an Apple supplier. The world's largest wholesale electronics market is also located in the city. Now, factories can still operate there, but with reduced capacity. And the major electronic market is closed. The mandate will keep the city closed until Thursday. It falls under China's zero COVID-19 strategy. The policy aims to eradicate the infection from inside China through lockdowns and mass testing for residents. Taking a closer look at the area of Shenzhen under lockdown, barricades are being set up around some residential compounds. And locals now need proof of a negative test result within 24 hours to enter. Even the start of the school year is getting delayed. Similar measures cover three other districts, affecting over six million people across the city. Elsewhere, Dalian City locked down three million of its residents the same day. Households in the major port city are only allowed to send one person out per day to shop for necessities. In the southwestern city of Chengdu, some districts suspended venues and tour groups. Plans to delay the start of the fall school semester will affect around 3.5 million residents. 
Over in North China, Shijiazhuang city authorities have set up barriers to section off certain areas. Pictures and videos reveal empty store shelves there after a wave of panic buying. The U.S. is boosting its military cooperation in the South China Sea. A United States Coast Guard boat is docked in the Philippines for a four-day visit. Coast Guard members from both countries plan to hold joint maritime drills. The drills are aimed to improve disaster response skills and maritime law enforcement, including search and rescue. They hope for a more connected, open and secure Indo-Pacific. Around 150 Philippine Coast Guard members and 250 of their U.S. counterparts will participate in the joint exercises. The same drills were conducted in 2019 and 2020. The president of the International Tennis Federation says Chinese athlete Peng Shuai appears to be safe. The famed sports star made headlines last year after she accused a senior Communist Party official of sexual assault and disappeared shortly after. The ITF president explained he didn't see her personally, but had a video conference with her weeks ago. Let's zoom in. The president of the International Tennis Federation, David Haggerty, commented Thursday on the whereabouts of Chinese tennis star Peng Shuai. He said he spoke with her six weeks ago through a video call. Well, we had a, a video conference and, and uh, we were able to talk about um, some experiences we had when we had met before, when we had seen each other before in person at some tennis events. We talked about that. Um, and again, I, I, I think uh, I felt comfortable. Uh, I will feel more comfortable when I see her in person, uh, you know, when she's traveling and, and when tennis opens up in China. Peng Shuai is the former world's number one in women's tennis doubles. She went missing last year after sharing a controversial post on Chinese social media platform Weibo. In it, she accused the former Chinese vice premier of sexual assault. Her post was promptly removed and she disappeared from the public eye for weeks. Her subsequent reappearances were accompanied by Chinese officials. Peng's well-being has since become a global concern, while the Chinese regime says the athlete is fine. A growing number of Chinese people are joining a grassroots movement to quit the Chinese Communist Party. More than 400 million have formally distanced themselves from the party. A rally in central London over the weekend marked the milestone. NTD's Jane Wirrell was on the scene. The sound of the cymbals pierces St. Martin's Place. But what they're celebrating is a grassroots movement that's been growing quietly. It's called Tuidang, which translates from Chinese as withdraw from the party. It involves people formally removing themselves from the Chinese Communist Party and its affiliations online. The people behind me are marking 400 million people quitting the Chinese Communist Party. Now, the quitting the Chinese Communist Party movement is a significant grassroots movement, which has been going on for almost two decades, both inside and outside of China. It is very significant for the Chinese people to quit the CCP and its affiliated organizations. Only by quitting the CCP will China have hope. I come here to support 400 million Chinese quitting the CCP and I'm also joined the Dragon Team. It's you know, based on traditional Chinese culture. The Tuidang movement first started in 2004 after the release of the book Nine Commentaries on the Communist Party by the Epoch Times. It documents the brutality of the CCP. 
Many of those who give out the copies of the book are practitioners of Falun Gong, a meditation discipline based on the moral teachings of truth, compassion and tolerance. For more than 20 years, the Chinese Communist Party has launched a campaign to vilify, arrest and torture Falun Gong practitioners. Some Chinese people use pseudonyms to quit the CCP out of concern for their safety. The party's history of killing and deceit has deeply impacted Chinese society. They, they teach us to hate Falun Gong, hate Uyghurs, you know, hate Tibetans, and against the, the landlord, you know, uh, before, against the, the students protesting in Tiananmen Square. He says some Western companies doing business deals with China to get goods cheaply could be complicit in funding the persecution of Chinese people. There was support from people walking past, including Natalie from Ukraine. I'm also from the communist background, so I know not that much, but a little bit. But still, I think everybody deserves to live in a free country and to be free, uh, free to uh, freedom of speech, freedom of thought, of religion, of everything. And it's a gift that we have from, from, from our birth, from God himself. So I'm very happy and I support those who stand and may they have courage and strength. This rally is a show of defiance against communist control and a symbol of freedom for the Chinese people. Zheng Waru, NTD News, London. Nearly half of Australians believe the Chinese Communist Party will launch a military attack on their country. This, according to recent research by the Australian Institute's International and Security Affairs Department. Here's more. The result was part of a survey involving over a thousand adults living in Australia. The other part of the survey asked the same number of people living in Taiwan. Compared to Taiwanese people, Australians appear to be more afraid of an attack from the communist country. Although Taiwan is only about 100 miles from China, while Australia is located thousands of miles away. More specifically, nearly one in 10 Australians responded that they believe China would attack Australia soon, while just one in 20 Taiwanese think Beijing would attack Taiwan soon. In the case of a Chinese attack, 57% of Australians say the United States would help defend Australia. While 11% said they didn't think so, the rest were undecided. The research comes as relations between China and Australia are at a low point. It started when the former Australian government called for an inquiry into the origins of COVID-19. This led to the Chinese Communist Party leveraging its economy against Australia, like imposing high tariffs or bans on Australian goods exported to China. Another recent escalation hit after Chinese military forces bullied an Australian military aircraft. That's as it was conducting routine surveillance in the South China Sea. Coming up, experts say the Chinese Communist Party has been quietly waging war and working to infiltrate America from the inside. Beijing knows it doesn't have better guns, missiles or jets, so it's turning to other tools, and some of them are far more powerful than gunfire. Well, we make no secret of our greed, so <laughs> it's just a question of, you know, playing, <clears throat> playing to those human frailties. Frank Gaffney shares his insights with the Epoch Times program American Thought Leaders. Find out more in just a minute here on China in Focus.
Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. The Chinese Communist Party has been waging wars on the U.S. An expert explains how they've taken traditional and non-traditional approaches. Beijing calls it unrestricted warfare. Those efforts come into play in unexpected battlegrounds. In schools, supermarkets, banks, labs, farms, on TVs and in newspapers. Even on American ballots, smartphones and laptops. What's more, many Americans may be unknowingly subsidizing Beijing's development with their own hard-earned money. Yanya Kellick, American Thought Leader's host, sat down with Frank Gaffney to find out how. Frank Gaffney is the executive chairman of the Center for Security Policy. He co-compiled a report that breaks down how the Chinese Communist Party conducts unrestricted warfare against the United States. To start, Gaffney gave us a brief idea of Beijing's strategy. They were pikers, the Soviets, compared to the Chinese Communist Party. The threat that they represented to us, and I was there in the Pentagon, at the height of the Cold War. My job was dealing with the Soviet nuclear threat, and I'm telling you, it was nothing, nothing compared to what we now face in terms of the comprehensive threat, nuclear, by the way, among others, from the Chinese Communist Party. So then this doctrine of unrestricted warfare, right? So there were two Chinese colonels that wrote a detailed book of how to wage war against the United States using the th methods that don't you don't conventionally think of as military methods. Okay. In 1999, yeah. they published this book, obviously with the permission of the Chinese Communist Party. They both, by the way, went on to general officer rank, so it wasn't as though these were, you know, radical outliers who were repudiated by the party. They were laying out the plan. And more to the point, what they did was they said, we're not strong enough to use military force at the moment. But these are the ways we can conduct warfare against the United States decisively. So, so tell me a little bit more about these. I mean, I, I, I keep having the United Front on my mind because I keep seeing its influence in various forms. Um, like, I'll just, to, to give a, another example, the Confucius Institutes, right? Ostensibly, many of them shut down. That was a great effort. But it, you know, turns out with a little more research that was being done uh, that that they were just kind of renamed as something else and the money was funneled in a slightly different way, but it's still there and that influence still exists in the U.S. much more broadly than even we realized. We just did a, a webinar and I would really commend to your viewers um, as a resource our website at the Committee on the Present Danger China, presentdangerchina.org. We do two weekly webinars of two different series. The first was one started about three months ago, I think now, which is detailing the unrestricted warfare, the various forms it is taking, how it is being weaponized, and the effects it's having on our country. It's powerful, it's chilling, really, especially taken together. The other series is what we call the USA Betrayed series. And it's looking at the help that Americans are giving 
to the Chinese in waging this warfare against us. And the last one, most recent one, was on the Confucius Institutes, as it happens, because of the help that academia is giving. And you're absolutely right. And I had no idea. I think of the 114 Confucius Institutes, 108 of them had been closed, thanks in no small measure to our friend Rochelle Peterson and the National Association of Scholars' work. And they're all back. Maybe not all of them, but many of them are back, and they've just rebranded them. But the same objective is being used, which is, yes, influence operation, recruitment, subversion, and essentially control of these campuses. And we talked about how the curriculum is being dictated, the people doing the teaching of the curriculum is being dictated, the people visiting the campus as speakers are being dictated, among many other things, by the Chinese Communist Party. This is insane. And there is, by the way, absolutely no reciprocity. We have no such opportunities to propagandize or do anything else, educate people in China. Tell me some more of these instruments that the CCP uses, both internally and globally. And like, Well, you, you touched on the most important one, I think, with the arguable exception of biological warfare that's killed a million Americans. Their focus on recruiting what has been called the old friends on Wall Street has been incalculably important to the Chinese Communist Party's whole agenda because it has enabled them to have us bankroll their unrestricted warfare against us, among many other things. I mean, you go through the litany of horribles of what they're up to. Things, for example, like the Belt and Road Initiative. They're making these payday loans that are, in fact, colonizing at my last count, something like 145 countries around the world paying for infrastructure to be built with their financing, which then winds up being something that, like payday loans... With, with loans that will never be paid back, can't which be then paid default back, to ownership by the CCP. Which means foreclosure on the assets, which means that you have now colonial presence and, as you say, dual-use power projection options worldwide. That money... A good part of it, at least, I think, is coming from the three, the estimates vary, three to six trillion dollars, trillion dollars, that has been moved by Wall Street, their old friends there, Larry Fink of BlackRock being a prime mover in this, from China, from, excuse me, the American investing public, pension funds, 401k plans, exchange traded funds, index funds, mutual funds and the like from America, from patriotic investment purposes and others, to our mortal enemy, the Chinese Communist Party. This is continuing. Larry Fink, not so long ago, said we ought to triple the amount of investment we're making there. And this is essentially, I think, the United Front or the Ministry of State Security or the Chinese Communist Party, the People's Liberation Army, whoever you want to say is running this thing, it is of immense help to them in enabling them to try to destroy our country. And it has to stop. Yeah. Well, and that there's this other element that, you know, frankly, many people don't realize. They imagine that money is kind of interchangeable, right? So, but the, the thing is, once that money goes into China, that money is very, very hard to get out. 
right? In fact, when people try, it's, it's almost impossible. So it kind of exists on paper for the companies that are doing the investing, but they don't actually have it. The problem is you can't actually own a piece of the company for whatever that's worth. You get a share in some virtual entity in the Cayman Islands, which gives you no recourse at all when, and not if, when, the Chinese simply say, sorry, you've just lost your money. <laughs> we've just closed that company or we've just turned it into something else. And that's without what's coming, Jan. If we are actually, no kidding, at war with China, those three to six trillion dollars are written off. They're just gone. And the people who will be affected will not be so much Larry Fink or Ray Dalio or Steve Schwartzman or any of these other masters of the universe on Wall Street. They'll be Americans, American pensioners. And now they've gotten their mitts on, if you can believe this, federal government employees, military as well as civilian. They're moving their money into companies that are building weapon systems with which to kill those men and women in uniform. And Wall Street sees no problem with this. They say, well, as long as it's not illegal, we're going to continue to do it. What about betraying your country? What about contributing to its destruction? Do you have no interest? Do you have no concern? Do you have no responsibility to avoid that? I think they do. I think if they don't, I think if they persist in it, it is treason, for God's sake. And it ought to be treated as such. The CCP certainly knew how to take advantage of our greed, right? Well, we make no secret of our greed, so <laughs> it's just a question of, you know, playing <clears throat> playing to those human frailties. But they do it systematically. They've made it into an industrial operation. That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on this show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching and see you tomorrow. The 2022 NTD 8th International Chinese Vocal Competition will be held from September 29th to October 2nd at the Merkin Hall of Kaufman Music Center in New York City. The competition is honored to have specially invited vocalists with the world-renowned Shen Yun Performing Arts to serve on its panel of judges. The gold award is $10,000. For more information, please visit vocal.ntdtv.com.